Hi everyone, Dan Quintana here, and I hope you are doing well. For this episode, I'm talking shop with Josh Woolley, who is the director of the Bonding and Attunement in Neuropsychiatric Disorders Lab, or BAND Lab, at the University of California, San Francisco, and senior author of several intranasal oxytocin studies in patients with schizophrenia. In our chat, we talk about some of the big questions that oxytocin research needs to address, and we also cover more broad issues in psychiatry research such as the difficulties in running time-consuming clinical trials while adapting to fast-changing research standards, particularly when it comes to open science. So, without further ado, here's my chat with Josh Woolley. Josh, I wanted to ask you, what do you reckon are the three big things that oxytocin research really needs to address at the moment? You know, there are these debates that people have that, that um, I think stops a lot of people from taking oxytocin seriously or it's an easy way to dismiss a whole body of research so you know you and i have talked about these questions about oxytocin getting into the brain uh, intranasal oxytocin in particular and like how that works how consistently it happens um uh and what are the predictors of, of how that works you know i think that there's been a lot of really interesting work about this um showing that it happens and certainly in animals and then there's a couple you know a handful of studies or maybe one study in humans if you show it shows up in the csf you could say well it shows up in CSF, but that may not be what matters right like it's, it's it can be released exonally as well and that's probably important um so you know more work on that more work on showing exactly what happens when you do intranasal oxytocin in humans what changes um at the level of receptors of the oxytocin receptor i think is what people would really want to see um yeah so i think that's an important thing to do it's a very challenging thing to do uh you know that there is this uh, study that just came out in mice that found a pet ligand i think think it's from the uh imperial college in london yeah exactly yeah so that was a, a it was a rodent study, but it was a pet ligand for the oxytocin. Um, well, it was it was a, I think it was in for the oxytocin receptor. So that's pretty exciting. So that, you know that showed that it, the intranasal oxytocin in the rodent could get into the olfactory bulb. Um, but you know, eventually, hopefully, we can do that in humans, and that might answer a lot of questions and put a lot of these concerns to rest. For me, you know, there are tons of studies that give intranasal oxytocin and show neural changes using fMRI during tasks and such. Um, so I'm convinced, but a lot of uh, people out there are not. Mm, I think this uh, this new study will actually go some way of, of, of helping to address that. Yes, but you know, in, I mean, in macaques, right, there's a whole bunch of studies that show that intranasal administration got led to CSF levels going up. Um, but even then, people, you know, there there are doubters. Absolutely, I think one of the big problems is um, quite often people will see these non-significant results and they'll go, "Oh, look, there's no effect here." But uh, these non-significant studies actually have very few participants and they use that same sort of criticism uh for the significant results but then when it comes to the non-significant results they're like oh it doesn't matter right right or that one study in humans where you know with the people with the indwelling i think they i think they had indwelling catheters or but basically they did lumbar punctures uh and got csf levels right and it took 75 minutes for the csf levels of oxytocin to go up after a single spray it was a tiny number of humans, but still, like, 
people are like, well, 75 minutes, you get the behavioral effects after 30 minutes. Still, you right. oxytocin up. I mean, <laughs> like, in the <laughs> down at the bottom of your spine. I mean, I, I think that's a pretty impressive result. Um, but, you know, more work is needed. Yeah. It, it reminded me a little bit of, um, I think it was uh, Ramachandran was talking about the studies that he's done with the um, phantom limb and such. And he would talk about how he, he could show up with a talking pig. And the pig would talk, and people would be like, oh, well, N is only one. And he's like, but this yeah. pig talk. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if that's really right. So I, th- I think there's a, th- this is an important issue that we, uh, the field needs to really put to rest. And, um, you know, luckily a lot of people are working on this. Yeah, there seems to be a few teams that are looking at this, but uh, it's good to see this work coming out from uh, this uh, this lab in London. Mm. So that so that'd be one issue. Uh, I guess what would be another one? Well, I think your your own work has spoken to this, and and it's something that we grapple with is the the delivery, right? So so intranasal oxytocin is you know intranasal administration of these peptides. Um, you know, has the challenges of like people question whether or not it gets into the brain, but also it's um, there's a lot of user, <laughs> there's potential for user error, right? Like a pill, it's hard to, if you put it in your mouth and you swallow it, it's hard to get it wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's possible, I guess, but with the nasal spray, you know, you can get the timing wrong, you can spray it in the wrong direction, you can use the wrong kind of spray. You know, we we had an issue where we were using these atomizers, and we got a batch of atomizers that didn't atomize. They just oh, wow. sprayed. You know, it's like they have one job. You know, but like, <laughs> and, and we did a pilot study where we did um, it was a in people with schizophrenia, and we did a, a video observed therapy. So this is we uh-huh. we called them twice a day and watched them administer it and gave them coaching over the phone. And we found that, you know, it's only five people over two weeks, but we found that like 80% of the time they would have done it wrong. Wow. And that's not just, that's separate from forgetting to do it at all, which is, you know, that's also a major issue in all clinical trials that people don't take the pills. That's the number one reason pills don't work, right? You forget to take them or you don't take them. But this was, people were trying to take it, but, you know, there's a whole procedure that you have to do and you have to, and that is a major issue in the literature and it kind of gets, it separates out the question of um, effectiveness from efficacy. Right. So like, like we might get negative trials just because we're not even testing oxytocin, right? We're we're going through the the motions, but people are not administering it in a consistent way. And so we don't even know if it works or not. And we don't know when we don't know, it's like an unknown variable that we're not quantifying. So that's a major challenge, and you know that's a sort of a technological challenge. Like, um, you know, get better devices. I think the breath-powered power, power device that that you've used have some major advantages. Um, yeah. So this is another major challenge. Yeah, I think um, when it came to actual compliance, I know that one thing that uh, Adam Gastella did to test compliance was he actually weighed the bottles at the end of the trial and used right. that as a rough. Uh, I think I think a, right. a reviewer might have asked for that, but uh, that was a, a rough proxy of um, what the participants actually took the spray and how much they took. Right. So we did that. We we've done that too, and that that gets you like if, whether or not they tried to take it. It's like seeing how many pills are left in the bottle. True. But what I'm saying is that uh, you know when people administer it themselves, certainly people with a, a severe mental illness, 
to do the procedure right with the timing or at least consistency is challenging, um, especially with these devices where you can do it really wrong. With an atomizer, you know, if you don't, you know, if you put it in the wrong angle or you spray it and it's sort of, you sneeze it out, like you, you can very easily make it so that it's sort of not effective at all. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, if this is going to actually hit the market long term, it's, it's got to be in a way that can be consistently taken because uh, yeah. if it's not consistent, then let, let alone the dosage that's getting in with, with different methods of actually doing the spray. Right. And, you know, uh, you know, Adam has done some nice work and has actually published some re- guidelines for how to administer mm. it. Um, though, they're, you know, are they evidence-based? Has he really tested all the different ways? I don't think so. Um, but at least consistency between studies is a major issue. And then... Yeah. Um, yeah, so so those and I think uh, probably at least some of the negative trials out there are probably due to people administering it incorrectly, um, but we don't know which ones are which. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. People are so right. light on methods; you just don't know what's going on. Right, and you know, I think that's another thing. Like, um, you know, the studies certainly in schizophrenia with intranasal oxytocin. I think the ones where uh, it's done in the lab where the RA is either watching the person do it or, or actually does it for them, you know, holds it. Um, you, my reading of the literature is that those studies are a little bit more consistent than the longitudinal clinical trials where people are doing it at home. They're doing it also, the, yeah, so they're doing it at home and you don't know exactly what they're doing. I guess that dovetails into another um, kind of issue is, uh, and this comes up a lot, is the, the dosing and the dose frequency how long the effects last, how long we should be dosing people. This is a huge issue that, that um, you know, no one really knows the answer to. You know, dose-finding studies, these are things that, you know, aren't that sexy usually, um, <laughs> right? But, like, you know, like how long does a, the effect of oxytocin work? Especially if you think of it on the, some high-level thing. Let's just talk about mentalizing. Like, how long, if it does improve mentalizing, how long does it do that for? What's your current that intuition is, there? Gosh, I don't know. It's a hard question to answer. I don't think probably more than hours. I would probably put it, you know, there's that one study in healthy young men using um, a face viewing paradigm that found that I think it was between 45 and 75 minutes was when they got the best effect. But that was a huge study that I think they had like, I forget, 150 people within subject doing this task in the scanner. Uh, And that was just, that wasn't, that was a very, it was a, there was the task was just looking at faces. So, so even that, right. And then the question of like, well, you know, there's, there's evidence that, or in animals at least, evidence that suggests that if you dose a bunch of times, you might end up with inducing endogenous release and could cause long-term increases in oxytocin uh, levels. But, as you well know, the, the peripheral measurement of oxytocin is not that closely tied to the CSF levels, let alone the the um, you know sort of synaptic release of oxytocin. And you know, so th- there are a whole bunch of questions. And you know, all these clinical trials. I mean, there have been a bunch of longitudinal clinical trials in multiple illnesses. We typically like, how do you pick your dosage? You say, oh well, uh, these other people have used this dosage in the lab. <laughs> and then, how frequently should they dose? Well. Anything more than twice a day is kind of not really feasible. So let's do twice a day because maybe that'll be enough. But who knows? Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, and if 
if the effects of a single dose of oxytocin really start 30 minutes after you take it and last another 60 minutes, say, let's, let's say that's true. I mean, um, it may or may not be true, but let's say it is true. Then clinical trials where you dose twice a day, you might be getting positive effects, washout, positive effect, washout, positive effect, washout. And whether or not you have an outcome of your trial depends on when you test people vis-a-vis their last dose of oxytocin. It's, right. it's such an interesting question. I think that's one of the first things that I actually get asked from more kind of lay people or people who are scientists, but it's still out of the field. And they're like, when do you give it uh, for, for these chronic administration studies? Do you give it perhaps before they're going into a, a social situation, for instance, or do you give it in the morning or in the art? But I, I think now it's more of a convenience thing. Twice a day, makes sense. Get up, do it in the morning, do it before you go to bed. Um, so it's, uh, but then there's this whole idea that it might actually, um, upregulate the production of endogenous oxytocin. If that's the case, then maybe twice a day is enough. Right. But we don't know. No one knows. And, you know, and, and if it is inducing endogenous levels, how long do you have to give it? How many times before you see a reliable effect on that? And how would we know? (laughs) Right. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, there's that work again from Adam's lab and, um, Dean, in animals, that if you dosed everyday animals, you can cause long-term effects in social behavior. Uh, at Karen Bales with the voles as well. But in humans, does that happen? How much would you have to do to make it happen? These are, you know, basically, we're it's unknown. Yeah, I was. Um, so th- you know, this major issues. So, yeah, yeah. Now you've um you've done oxytocin research for a number of years now. Is there anything that you would have changed if you would uh, start again today? Well, you know that old joke that by the time you finish your last experiment, you're ready to do your first experiment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tons of things. Tons of things. I, you know, how many of them are related to oxytocin? I'm not sure. I mean, you know, um, uh. You know, some of the things I think that that were that have worked out pretty well for me um, are the the within subject designs that we were able to use. That has been both a blessing and a curse. Right, so we pick tasks. So when you're able to pick a task that has 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 two versions and has been shown to not have much um, practice effects or order effects, then you you can really harness this, especially in a disorder like schizophrenia when there's so much intersubject variability, right? The disorder is so heterogeneous. If you randomize people, you know, you need a huge sample to get enough, um, you know, to, for the two groups to really be matched, right? Whereas yeah. if you do a within-subject design, it's the same people are in both places. So you can find within-subject changes even against the background of lots of intersubject variability. So that has been a major strength, but it's a major hurdle if you try to do anything that that there is an order effect. Basically, if you get an order effect in that, like say people treat the task on day two differently than on day one, you're out of luck. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. You end and up quite with often a- those are the tasks that have the more ecological validity as well. Right, exactly, and you 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 can still fall back on a, a between subject design from the first day, right? Because you're still because right? you randomize those people and such, but you're often significantly underpowered, and so then you know that's not a great thing. Um, this issue, you know, uh, people can't tell that, that 
Okay? Many, many people have shown that. That is a strength and that you can use it within, in, within subject designs without blinding people. You know, I'm sorry, without breaking the blind. Um, <laughs> I, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to blind people, right? <laughs> right you don't, don't, it doesn't break the blind because people can't tell um, if they're on it or not. But it raises the issue of, um, you know, uh, keeps me up at night sometimes, like uh, that it, it's not doing anything, right? I mean, yeah. It's hard to you know, positive control, like something that proves that the oxytocin, like if we could have like a consistent effect, we're like, oh, yeah, oxytocin's definitely happening. Uh, you definitely got the brain in this person. That would be really, really helpful. I don't. I've thought a lot about this. I don't exactly know how to do that. I mean, people are like, well, central levels, but you know, that is not really feasible. Um, a pet ligand could be amazing, but even even if we had a pet ligand, um, it's not something that you'd be able to use in all your studies. So uh, practical. No, and you know, it's radioactive too. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, like a lot of people won't want to do that, and the timing is such that you know, it's like not easy studies to do. So it's. Um, you know, it, that, that's a major hurdle trying to use these uh, compounds that we all have in our bodies already. Like, like you know, if you give some other drug like, you know, Zoloft or, you know, any of those other things, you can test to make sure that it's like in the person's blood. Like, you know, it should yeah. be in there and test it, shows up in their urine, say, or whatever. But oxytocin, we all have to various levels. And, you know, so it's hard to know. It's hard to know. Like, and that keeps me up at night. That's something that, that makes me worried. Like, any of my negative null findings, are they really that oxytocin doesn't do that? Or is it that in that particular study or a bunch of the people didn't, you know, your work, for example, like their nasal anatomy isn't conducive to it. Like there are all these things that I can't really get at and I don't, it's hard to know who those people are. Um, so that is a, that's a thing that I wish I had done better, but I, I don't exactly know how to do it better. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's a really good um, question because that's something that um, Tom Insel raised in one of his sort of later papers that he wrote as the head of the NIMH was that we actually need to define these targets for oxytocin um, because if you don't define these targets, we're not actually sure whether the drug is, is inefficacious or where it's like a dose problem. So, that, yeah, like there's just it's a shame there's no actual clear marker that we can use. Right. Yeah. But this, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pickle. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of describing it. <laughs> it's a pickle. But just because we don't have that doesn't mean that oxytocin can't, isn't an effective treatment or it, you know, it doesn't, it's just a, a challenge. I mean, if this was easy, everybody would do it, right? So Yeah, so true. Yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting ride for me. I think I've learned a ton, ton of things. It's been pretty fun. Uh, still... You know, it's, I could have run all the studies better. I guess that's always the thing you could do. You could, you could have been more precise. You could have been, you know, there were there were unexpected challenges like the broken atomizers, you know, things yeah. like that. Um, but I don't know. Those seem like pretty. I, I, I couldn't have avoided those without doing it. If that makes sense. Sure. Is, is there anything that you've sort of changed your mind about since you started? I know for me, I kind of went into this thinking, yes, this is a exclusively a social hormone. But I think more in the past few years, I've sort of seen evidence both from my own lab and from other people that it might not necessarily be exclusively a social hormone. Do you have anything within your work that you've changed your mind about? Hmm. Well, I've been surprised. I mean... Yeah, that's good. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, my first study, you know, the, I thought oxytocin was going to improve all aspects of social cognitive deficits and schizophrenia. That's why, I, you know, I, I thought that. Right? I thought, oh, you know, it's this, as you say, a social, pe- you know, peptide. It's going to tune up the whole social uh, cognition system. And it's going to be, you know, good for all these things. And that's not at all what we found. You know, we found that it um, didn't improve social cue perception. It didn't improve uh, emotional affect detection. It didn't improve porosity detection. It didn't improve a bunch of things like that. And that may be due to the dosage, right? I know that, you know, we were using, again, just a particular dosage that everyone else had used. So, it's possible that it might affect those things at different dosages and, and so on. Um, but we did get these more consistent findings on, on mentalizing. And I had not gone into this thinking that that would even be possible, <laughs> that you yeah. could affect mentalizing without affect, affecting social cue perception. That was just a lack of my you know, imagination. But um, that was a big surprise. And at you know in our hands, at the dosage of you know, 40 IU – I, you know, I've changed my mind. I don't think it does improve social cue perception at that dosage in people with schizophrenia. Uh, I could be wrong about that. There might be a way to make it work, but I, I haven't been able to, and I've looked pretty hard at that. So, so that that has been a surprise. That's something I changed my mind about. We, we've included a couple non-social things like working memory. Um, we you know, that we'll be publishing that soon, where we didn't find an effect of oxytocin on working memory, a single task of working memory in schizophrenia. Okay. Um, so there's that, but you know, that doesn't mean that it, it does isn't going to affect other things about that aren't social. Um, you know, these. I mean, it would be like like what does dopamine do? <laughs> you know? yeah. No, that's that's so true. You know, right? So, so I I doubt that it just does one thing or even one group of things. I mean, it, um, I mean, we know that it doesn't. I mean, it's in the uterus. It makes the uterus contract. I don't think yeah. that's a social thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, it's that's what it's mostly used for clinically. So, uh, I knew that. I guess I just, yeah. I was so, um when my wife recently gave birth and we were in the hospital. Um, we, we were there with the midwife, and the midwife was like, "Oh, so um, this is oxytocin. Oh, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but we might use this for your wife." I'm like, "Okay, yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard of it before. Yeah, once or twice." <laughs> yeah right so you know i mean yeah yeah so i i, I think uh, are there are lots of things that we don't know and there are lots of things that i would like to know and um i you know another thing i would love to know get kind of get saying some stuff that is unknown is is uh the predictors or these moderators of oxytocin effects like people have found those in a bunch of different places and, you know, attachment style. We found it with drug, you know, antipsychotic dosage and yeah. men versus women and the contact. And I mean, there are a whole bunch of things. And right now we're kind of in the dark. We sort of, you know, we can replicate or sort of begin to replicate some of these things. They probably have to do with, well, they must have to do with the, um, the structure of the brain, something about how the brain is set up or sensitive to these things, uh, what's happening dyna- you know, dynamically in the short term as well as long term, um, how the brain has been set up. 
Also, there are things like anatomy of the nose and such that probably is also affecting variability. Um, So these are all things that make it very challenging to, you know, definitively say. (laughs) Yeah. I often think about like thyroid hormone, right? Like if you couldn't measure your thyroid functioning, right? You didn't have that ability. We, We do have it, but suppose we didn't. You could treat people with thyroid hormone, like synthetic one, and give it to people, and some people would get much better, but some people would get much worse. <laughs> if you put them all together as a group, you would just cause movement, um, some people getting better, some people worse, and it would look like it doesn't do anything, right? Or, yeah. or it would be doing something nonspecific. Uh, so, I don't know. <laughs> it's just a major challenge to actually have these pre-registered hypotheses, but also this exploratory stuff to see sure. what are potential moderators. And then people in future research can actually go, well, they found this thing. Let's actually include this as a, as a pre-registered moderator of an effect. Yeah. So, I mean, that's another thing that's changed over the years that I've been doing oxytocin. Or I've not changed, but as, you know, the culture and the sort of replication crisis and oxytocin has certainly been uh, front and center. A target, an opportunity, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we are changing how we do things. Um, you know, but these studies often take years to do. And, you know, we're like, oh, yeah, we didn't, people didn't, you know, we, we weren't doing this back then when we started this and we couldn't do it midway. And, you know, so, so I guess that's something I wish I had done differently. Um, you know, pre-register more. Yeah, I think um, because I I chat a lot with a lot of the um, open science community within psychology and and psychiatry. And one thing I keep telling them, and a lot of people in psychology don't understand, is that trials within psychiatry take such a long time, both in planning and conducting and doing this kind of stuff. And all these open science things seem to come up overnight. And they're going, why aren't you doing this for your studies? But it's because yeah, I started right. planning my study four years ago. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Uh, you know, yeah. like, if I was doing an MTurk study or studying undergrads, or <laughs> I, I could change totally. my way now and like just do it differently. And you know, but you know, like we're publishing data that took us, you know, five years to collect. You know, yeah. and it's like, um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to whine or anything. I'm just saying, like, you know, no, it's, no, it's, it's reality. You know, I used to study animals, you know, in my PhD, I was doing animal work and the turnaround is just way faster. And then yeah. I think studying healthy people, you know, is all is, is, is slower than animals, but faster than clinical populations and doing studies with drugs and in, in clinical populations. Obviously, there's a lot of regulatory stuff and safety and things. And uh, it's just a slow turnaround. So, you know. In the data that I'm going to publish, you know, five years from now, we're pre-registering. So, I'm, you know, I'm yeah. <laughs> what's next, though? I had a chat with a guy today who is um, working for or working on a project which is implementing blockchain for science. And Whoa. his thing is that you actually bake in uh, like automatic data collection for the data you're collecting. It's going to go out into the blockchain um, so all, all the data is going to be there and then there's a record of when it was collected. So that seems to be the way things are going. Uh, wow. But, you know, things are, yeah, I mean, obviously hot, there's privacy right? issues. <laughs> blockchain, yeah. Right, right, it's blockchain. Yeah. It's all it's uh, all happening. 
Right. And well, yeah. And and you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. We we are doing a, a large study. Um, you know, this is a this is actually not in a clinical population. These are healthy people, but they're we're studying the effects of oxytocin on groups in the lab. And so we we have almost four hundred people in our study. Wow. And yeah, and we data collections finished. Uh, it took us three years from getting funding to finishing data collection. And now we're in our no cost extension for a year that started in June. So we're, you know, analyzing the data. Well, we're actually right now we're pre-processing the data. We're still blind. We haven't unblinded yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and we probably, you know, we have many, you know, we're collecting psychophysiology data. We have video data. We have behavioral data, wow. you know, like performance. Um, as well as demographics, but you know, video data of these people interacting, and so there's a huge amount of data, and and you know the 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 pre-registration, sort of open science, like to, to do it, you know, sort of the current gold standard would be to you know pre-register all your hypotheses, pre-register all of your steps, like get all of your code written, so that when you unblind, you just hit the button and it goes chicka chicka chicka, right? Yeah. And you make figures, and it, it automatically writes your paper for Nature, and you're done, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you millionaire, right? And 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 I see that, and I get that. There are just some practical issues. Um, you know, for example, the postdoc who's been working on it for you know two years, you know, he wants to go on the job market, and um, sure. you know, <laughs> if we pre-process all of the data. And by pre-processing, I mean cleaning and organizing and, you know, behaviorally coding and all the different things um, that that will take a long time. And so he will go on the job market with no with no major paper from his postdoc, even though, you know, he's doing it right. And and that is probably how it has to be. But it's kind of he's competing against other people who are doing things differently. I don't think anyone knows exactly what to deal with this. Um, I mean, it, you know making sure the literature is, is good. Like, you know, it's <laughs> like those. Yeah, it's tricky. But, you know, it does make you think like, well, should we pre-process one section of the data, like just the physio data, and then, you know, pre-register that, and then unblind ourselves for that, but, but somehow keep ourselves blind for the other kinds of data? I don't know. This is an ongoing discussion, and we are trying to, you know, do it the best we can. But there are you know, consequences. Yeah. I think people often forget that there's people behind (laughs) changes. Uh, I've seen a debate on Twitter over the past few days about uh, one lab, which said that we're going to share the word data, but they haven't actually been sharing at all. I saw this debate, right? Yeah. 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 Neuroimaging, um, uh, is another major place. I, you know, I've, I've heard, I, I do a little bit of neuroimaging, but it's not my major thing. But, you know, it's really expensive. It's really time-consuming. Um, you collect all this data. How quickly do you make it publicly available for, you know, mm. who are just hanging around uh, and then analyze it like crazy and write papers? You know, it's sort of um, a free writer issue. And this lab has actually been scooped before. I think it's the only actual documented case of someone getting scooped. Really? Yeah, Wait, so, they- so they posted their data, and yeah. uh, one of the students got uh, scooped for the result they were doing because the other lab just worked faster. Right, because they didn't have to waste all that time, you know, collecting data. Collecting data yeah. is a real hassle. 
<laughs> it's just incredible. Like, I kind of think to myself, should I even bother collecting data in the future? Because so many of these massive papers are coming and they're That's- just from these public data sets, which is great. But right. uh, it makes you think, man, like, we're, we're at the coalface going through all this ethics stuff and collecting all this data. Um, right. for, and these other people are, like you said, it's like people are working with different rules and there's right. just, it, it, it's hard to compete. Right. And, and you know, I, I think all of these things is about the culture of science, right? So, like this, you know, how do we, you know, the whole idea of like, like, uh, like I met um, David Kupfer you know, so, and he gave the advice. He said, there are a few academic problems that can't be solved with more first author data driven papers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, I he's right, but the whole idea that you know that our the coin of the realm is first author papers yeah. is problematic, right? I mean, it's you know, how do you get team science? We know that you you know, no one person can do all the things in in research to to be successful. Like the skill sets to do really good work across many different disciplines, and even within a discipline, there are different skill sets, you know. It's, uh, I think it's become a real problem um, just when it comes to actually assigning credit for, for these t- types of things. I kind of noticed a shift that um, maybe a few years ago, people would still prize kind of third, fourth authorships. But now I think mm-hmm. because the, grant, the granting agencies aren't doing it as much, people are less keen to actually contribute when they are third, fourth, fifth author. Maybe it's just my experience. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I, 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 you know, there are different kinds of people out there and, um, you know, it's all... Different fields also have different ideas about this. Like, I have a collaborator who doesn't like to have papers, just doesn't like to be on papers that have too many authors. And then in medicine, you know, that's more likely to happen. You know, not as much as astronomy or physics, but, you know, (laughs) like there are different, you know, sort of cultures around this about what, uh, you know, like. That's like diluting their CV? No, it's more like how many people can really contribute to a paper. I think uh, is the like idea. principal thing. Yeah, like you know, like like who's really contributed intellectually, and you know, it's complicated. I don't know the answer to these things. I mean, the whole idea that there are papers, like like for example, the postdoc, right? So this, this postdoc, he's done an amazing job. Like he's run this really complex study. Um, you know, high fidelity data, like, you know, it's like running a Broadway show every day. And <laughs> I understand that until it turns into a paper, it, you know, kind of didn't happen. Right. Yeah. Like, unless you publish it, it's like, it didn't happen. So I get that. Um, but at the same time, there are, there are built in delays and, and the culture is changing so that you're not allowed to publish things piecemeal like you shouldn't because that leads to bad science. And I get that too. Yeah. I don't, it's, it's just a, it's a thorny problem. It's a real pickle. <laughs> yeah. But uh, and, you know, funding is always getting tighter. Job, job, the job market's always getting more fierce. So, you know, like, um, you know, it's, it's not going to get better. No. <laughs> I just remember like um, I hired a PhD student uh, late last year and looking at the uh, CVs of the applicants I was thinking if I was applying for this job I would never have gotten it I wouldn't even been on the short list not even on the long list nothing like the standard is just crazy now again I don't know the answer to this I just you know try and I'm trying to do the best I can and I don't I don't want to contribute to the 
to the you know sort of what is it that the, the published literature doesn't match up with the reality like we're getting farther and farther away i mean i see that as a major challenge um and you know like i don't want to have a file drawer so i try and publish everything that we find like i try and do, set up the studies as well as we can test our hypotheses publish it either way and you know i'm not the first person to say this though that you know it's really hard yeah of course <laughs> really, you know and, and to to get the motivation to, you know, push out those null findings when nobody wants them. You know, I, I don't, you know, I don't know if you just just uh, this week, uh, this massive clinical trial of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for psychosis came out in Lancet, and it was null. It was a null finding. Yeah, that. But it's and important. It's really important. Yeah, and it was a huge ordeal. It was a, really high quality study and it got published in a good journal which is great um but like there was no media <laughs> there was no media yeah. interest and like you know people don't you know i actually you know when i was a grad student um i was trying to replicate i, I had this idea about um this you know there was a finding in the literature and in patients with hunting disease and i had this idea and i was going to study it and i started studying it, and i couldn't replicate the original finding and my mentor at the time said, you should stop and study something else because people who disprove things um, almost always are forgotten. <laughs> like that is not a way. Now, this was, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, and I took his advice because, you know, I was a first-year grad student. And I was like, okay, okay boss. Well, you know. And <laughs> time passed, and I still followed the literature. And it turned out that there it wasn't like a total – failure to replicate so someone else came along and found that actually there was a, another moderator that that was not known in the first study and so i might have been able to find that so you know but you know just going around disproving things or finding that things don't work while super important for science we have not really figured out a way to re to reinforce that so much yeah and so it almost needs to become like incidental that you just need to be uh forthright with all the stuff that you're publishing and then it kind of just happens along the way rather than actually seeking for this for these results well yeah. i might um wrap it up with this with this, this little sure. story but uh i know that the registered reports uh, uh have you have you heard of this new concept of this new sort of way of publishing and i would love to do it uh it's kind of come along while I was you know, while I was running studies, it was too late. But I would love to do it next time. I think that is one way to solve this problem. I think it's really cool. Yeah, I'm reviewing a a paper which is looking at a really important or proposed to be important mechanism of oxytocin. And uh, no matter what they do, if they actually um, make it an appropriately powered study, it's going to be quite definitive. In does it actually have an effect? on this particular thing or not it's going to be That's very great. interesting and and the the journal which is a very fancy journal will publish the results regardless which is going to be cool i think that is great you know i think that is um it's a really cool thing you know it it and maybe that's how everything will change it it still runs you know culture maybe the culture just needs to change like this idea of you know, you pilot something, you might find some preliminary data, and then you study it. And, you know, the trainees are sort of building from a small thing to a big thing. Um, 
with a registered report like you're describing, you kind of have to have enough resources to do a definitive study. Yeah. Which, you know, the, the granting agencies aren't also, it's sort of a, you know, it's, they're at cross purposes a little bit. Yeah. Um, right. So, but I mean, this is all good. This is, you know, we should be thinking about these things and trying to make them better. Um, yeah. Just well, again, collaborate you, and uh, collect data at both our labs. Let's do it. I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I'm ready. Uh, you know, um, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and what you were saying earlier about how they're people, like these are people and, you know, like, I, I think this is a, uh, you know, I, I don't want to wax too philosophical, but, you know, this is a crazy way to run a business <laughs> for science. <laughs> you know, like grants and trainees and these are people's careers and, and you know, like, like, you know, like you might have a break in grant funding and you have all these people that you're paying, you have to let them go, but you can't just find those people again. They have lives and stuff. And, um, I don't know. It's just a, it's a, it's a crazy way to run a business. You know, let's, I could just yeah. say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you've got, uh, a lot of other stuff to do today, but, uh, thanks for, Hello? thanks for chatting. My pleasure. This is great. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, the best way to show your appreciation is to share the show via social media. If you want to follow Josh's work, his lab on Twitter is at the band lab, one word. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at DS Quintana, where I share my day-to-day research process. I also share videos of select episodes via Instagram TV and YouTube. Just check the links in the show notes. The best way to contact me is via Twitter or Instagram DM if you have any questions or suggestions for the show. Bye for now.